Hi, everybody. This is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Peter Diamandis, the most remarkable advanced scout of breakthrough technology that I have ever known about, and I pay attention to this. And we're here with Exponential Wisdom, and we have an enormous number of previous of our podcasts. And you know, when you come across new podcasts, it's new. And so some of the stuff that Peter and I did seven, eight years ago, people get it. That's just really great. So Mm. make sure you listen to it. Hey, Dan. Hi, Peter. Good to see you, my friend. And thank you, as always, for being my coach on accelerating the exponential world that we're living in. You know, I love my time with you. It's always fresh. And it's always, you know, people say, what do you speak about? We say, you know, the things that get us most excited in the world that we think we want to learn about from each other. So today, you brought up a topic which is really important, which is ultimately, what is the soil that you're fertilizing your startup in, so to speak? I mean, let me let you translate to what that means for our topic. Well, as a matter of timing, I think it's a timing issue. And as you know, some of your great stars that you've brought to the stage at A360 said, you know, that, yeah, you can be really talented and you got something that's really great, but timing is really important when you bring it to the marketplace. And one of the toughest times to bring something new to the marketplace is when things are really going well in the economy, okay? And the reason is because stuff that really isn't all that good is doing well where you have a new idea that's a lot better, but nobody will give you any attention because things are going well. Yeah, I mean, one thing that everybody should know is, you know, people panic during a time of, in 1987, in 2001, in 2008, in 2020, during these downturns, whether it's a financial crash or a pandemic or a dot-com bust, whatever it is. Or a war. Or a war. Yeah, exactly. World War One, World War Two, And it's a ninja move for entrepreneurs to get out of the panic mode, to get out of the mass delirium, like, holy shit, you know, the world's falling apart. What am I going to do? And to flip in and say, oh, my God, this is an incredible time. This is a perfect opportunity for my next startup, for me to think about what does the world need? Because there's a lot of things that are happening that are freeing up the raw material that an entrepreneur needs. Yeah. Well, just from a historical standpoint, from the time of the American Civil War to World War One, America had, on average, a not a recession, a depression every seven to eight years. Okay. And when you look at some of the breakthroughs in the late 19th century, you know, you had electricity, you had the telephone, you had the internal combustion machine, you had cracking the code on chemicals, you know, and then all sorts of organizational breakthroughs. And then early in the, you know, you had the automobile, you had the airplane, yes, you know, and this all happened at times where really bad things were happening about every seven years, but they didn't happen in the seven years between the bad times, they happened during the bad times. Yeah. And so what's happening when the world is crashing? Well, first of all, there are new needs being created. Secondly, there's a lot of human capital being opened up, right? So I go back to the 2008 situation. What happened that caused Uber and Airbnb to launch in 2008? Well, people needed to earn more money. So 
what happened was people said, okay, I can earn money by allowing my couch to be available for people to sleep on. And I can earn money by allowing people to ride in my car. And so those sorts of situations give birth to new companies. Yeah, and I think organizationally within companies, all the people are making a lot of money, but they're not actually creating any value, usually retire, fire, or they die. Yes. Okay, and so young talent within the organization gets a chance to come to the top with brand new ideas. So I think we're coming out of a pandemic at this moment when we're recording this. You know, it's epidemic, it's continuing, COVID's not going away. And it'll, you know, we'll see how bad it is. But we also have a global recession. There's lots of people screaming about depression and all of that. And so, you know, access to capital becomes challenging during these times. But what that also causes is people to re-engineer what they're doing, to think about how do I do it cheaper? How do I do it with less money? Mm-hmm. How do I really solve a problem? How do I become aspirin versus vitamin? What I mean by that is, you know, vitamin is nice to have. Aspirin is I need to have it. Yeah. And I think right now, one of the big things that people don't talk about, but the collapse of a lot of supply chains in the world, just talk about food from Russia and the Ukraine, is that Ukraine and Russia are the two biggest wheat producers in the world. And that food is not getting out. So all of a sudden, people are saying, you know, we have to take a second look at GMO agriculture now. You know, we've been depending on, you know, these countries that supply big food crops and that it's going to go on forever. But it just got interrupted since February. And already they're experiencing food shortages all over the the world where people don't have a margin of error for, in the United States, we have a margin error for food. Yes. There are vast sections of the world that don't have any margin for error. Yes. So what's your advice to somebody who is an entrepreneur right now? You know, someone is like, I have an entrepreneurial bug. I want to create something. I want to do something, you know. Do you have any particular points of view there? Yeah, because I just completed four years of not watching television. I said, stop watching television (laughs) and stop talking to people who are overly influenced by watching television and start talking to people and start watching which demands are taking place in the world. I mean, one of the really, really big growth markets right now is fertilizer. You know, and fertilizer, I mean, we can't feed 8 billion people without massive amounts of fertilizer, okay? So fertilizer factories, I think the other thing is that there's a reshoring going on in the United States right now, and it's in everything. It's not just one thing, and the U.S. is looking to have everything in the Western Hemisphere. They don't want to depend on the Eastern Hemisphere for their products. Yep. So if you're in Colombia, we've got clients from Colombia, we have clients from the Central America, we have clients from Mexico. I said, you can reconfigure your future right now because what used to come from Southeast Asia, what used to come from Europe, I said, it's going to be in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And that's a shift. They say, well, is that going to be forever? I said, no, it's a shift right now because of what's happening. Because corporations and markets and people who sell things, they don't think 10, 20, 30 years down the road. They're thinking about the next quarter. They're thinking about the next year. 
So my feeling is you got to be really, really adept. And the other thing is, and it's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to really accept this, Peter, and you've seen it, that other people's bad news is your good news. Yeah. It's uh, a friend of mine used to say, profiting at the misfortune of others, which is kind of a crass way of saying it. But you're not. Yeah. You're creating a new solution where there is no longer an existing solution. Yeah. But if you're attached to the emotions of people and, you know, and you're feeling down too, you're not going to create anything. Going back to the notion of onshoring, there's another meta trend going on because we are onshoring everything. We're going to onshore food. We're going to onshore chip manufacturing. We're onshore all manufacturing. And we're going from a situation where in a lot of the world, we'd go to China and India, if you're a U.S. or European country, because the labor rate was cheap there and the industrial base was there. But we're now going to move to 3D printing and automation in the U.S. And there's some incredible companies that are pushing that forward, where the labor rate is the cost of electricity and the capex of the equipment. And so there's a big push there. And the travel costs, the yes. transportation yeah. costs are De minimis. cut yeah. enormously. Yeah. But there's a flip side of that, which was we're offshoring cognitive capacity. So it's interesting for a lot of my companies, you know, it's more and more difficult to get access to AI expertise or machine learning expertise, whatever brand of software development that you're thinking about. And so I'm developing a number of companies that were using people in Brazil, Pakistan, Ukraine, who are now in Poland, and parts of India and Philippines. Mm. And so there's a lot of smart people around the world. It used to be that I would look, I'm in Santa Monica right now, you're in Toronto. I think you're in Toronto, yes? Yes, indeed. Right at this moment. So, you know, I would look for somebody local to me mm -hmm. because I wanted them to show up in the office. And now what I call geographic arbitrage is extraordinary, mm. right? Because- yeah. Yeah, I can get a fraction of the price, anywhere from 10% to 25% of the salary, and they're really good. Well, they're really good, and that 10% here wouldn't do them any good, but in their country, it's full wages, you know. It's, and better. Uh, or better, yeah. yeah. I think one of the reasons, an interesting study, Keenan Caldwell is an IP lawyer, and for the last three years in the United States, he's been the fastest growing IP lawyer in the United States. And he's just waiting for the results because they come out in August for this year. This is Forbes. This is a Forbes research. Mm -hmm. But he's got an interesting study, and it's a standard and poor. And he took the top five companies that are the top five companies like Apple and Google and or Alphabet and everything. And he was talking about how they were observed by standard and poor's in the 70s and 80s. And in 84, the average for the five biggest was that their valuation was based on 82% tangibles and 18% intangibles. Mm -hmm. Last year, it was reversed. Wow. That it was 82% intangibles and 18%. So when it was tangibles, we went for the cheapest labor in the world. When it's intangible, we go for the lowest cost, easiest to work with brain power. Yep. Yes. And that's the whole world is going. I mean, it's like the iPhone, you know, people say, well, 95% of production and assembly of the iPhone is offshore. And they said, yeah, but 90% of the design is in the United States. Yeah. Or through their networks of what you're doing, you know, 
But these people aren't carrying stuff. They're not using their hands. What they're doing is using their brains. Yeah, there's another interesting thing going on right now. So we talk a lot about Web3. Web2, the people who made money in Web2, the traditional web that we have today, are the software programmers. And there was a concept I just heard about that makes a hell of a lot of sense, is the people who are going to make the most money in Web3 are going to be the creatives. Mm -hmm. So we're taking all of the required hard software work and making that available through AI layers. And it's really going to be the value of the creative genius, just the ideas right? Whether you're an artist, a writer, a poet, whatever the case might be. And so we're moving to a creator economy more and more. Mm -hmm. Well, the, (laughs) I mean, when I was born, I was born in the forties and, you know, the greatest hope of my classmates. So I graduated from high school 60 years ago Mm -hmm. and you didn't think about college in those days. You thought about getting a job on the line at GM. I grew up in northern Ohio, and, and within 15 miles, we had GM, we had Chrysler, we had Ford. And if you got a job on the line at 18, you were set until 65. Yes. Within three or four years, you could be married, you could own a house. By the time you were 30, you could have three or four kids. They gave you lifetime, really good health care for the time. And they gave you, the pension grew from 18, and they had all sorts of educational benefits. They even had vacation resorts where as a GM worker, you could go with your family. They gave you low-cost home loans and everything like that. And that was the age we lived in. And the only place you can get anything that resembles that right now is if you're really creative and you're doing brain work, you know, that has a... 100 times multiplier, 1,000 times multiplier, a million times multiplier. And people said, it's not fair. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, Brown, <laughs> but I said, here they are. You know, they're making about uh, half a million dollars a year talking, you know, talking and just coming up with ideas. And they said, it's not fair. And I said, you're not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I said, but the whole thing, are you useful? The only thing is... Can we get people really focusing on their unique abilities and unique skills? And can you create an organization where you get to do what you love doing and you create really great teamwork? I drew a diagram yesterday for my in-person workshop, Mm -hmm. you know. You still do those, huh? You're coming tomorrow. I'll be on the virtual workshop tomorrow, yes. You know, with Zoom now, I say, you know, can I pack it all in? When I first started doing in-person, I said, it's 2 o'clock and I've got three hours to fill up, what will I do? Because I got so used to doing boom, 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 boom. But then with in-person, people want to talk and you can stop and they ask questions and you can go down this avenue. But I drew three upward lines and I said, we're all in the same business now. Everybody in the world is, is in the same business. And that is, there's technology and there's teamwork. And the most successful people can connect teamwork with technology, Mm. okay? Unfortunately, technology does not coach itself. Unfortunately, teamwork does not naturally multiply itself through technology. And in the middle is coaching. So I think the three parts of all the economies right now are technology, coaching, and teamwork. That's what you are. You're a coach in the middle. I'm a coach in the middle. Yeah, for sure. 
Sure. I mean, my job is to help people see where this technology is going and how to utilize it and to not be fearful of the future, but be excited by it. Which again, this is a lot about mindsets, which is where I spend time these days. Me too. Yeah, it's like the mindset during a period of a pandemic or a period of a massive economic downturn. The majority of people, because we're living with our our 100,000-year-old brain is in a time of hardship and panic and disaster, you panic. You go with the clan and you run. Go to the back of your yeah, brain. Yeah, you go to the, exactly. You go to your midbrain. You go to your reptilian brain. Survive. You know, it's scarcity and survival. But if you're an entrepreneur operating with sort of the higher functions, you're like, okay, this is bad and amazing. And there are going to be a lot of opportunities and I can help and I can solve problems. And there are going to be a lot of people who are super qualified, who lose a job that I can hire. And how do I take advantage of this? And how do I help people earn revenue? And you know, all of a sudden, you realize it's an extraordinary time to be entrepreneurial. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, there's a writer, Nisam Talib. I'm sure you've a black swan yeah, and anti-fragile. And he was talking about how he grew up in Lebanon, and they were very proud because for 1,800 years, Lebanon had not had an internal war. They didn't have an internal war. There was no internal strife in Lebanon. And then the civil war started in 1970s, late 1970s, and still going on. And he said nobody was prepared for it because they thought that, you know, this doesn't happen to us. Mm. And so he immediately got out of Lebanon and moved to the United States, okay? And he created an entirely different career. And he said, you got to know when something's going to be over so that you can get on the next train. I don't know what it is, and this is the great inequality. The great inequality isn't really in skills. The great inequality is actually an understanding of timing in the world that everything that exists has got an end. Yeah. Some people, I say, Peter, some people get the message with a breeze, okay? Some people need a jackhammer in the middle of their forehead, and some people have to get hit by a Mack truck. Timing is everything. Yeah. There's There's a great great inequality of sense of timing. Yes, for sure. And what we open this podcast conversation about is that there are periods of time during which there's great opportunity, and those correlate with great dis equality and and disruption. But there's a great talk by a friend of mine, Bill Gross, CEO of of Idea Lab. I've had him on my stage a number of times at A360 and one of the most prolific entrepreneurs out there. And he asked a question once and he said, if I look at the top 100 most successful companies and the 100 that I thought would have been successful but failed, is there a signal in the noise? Can you figure out why these succeeded and why these failed? And he did the analysis and he asked, look at a whole bunch of parameters, like how much capital did they have at startup? How many times had the CEO been successful in the past? What industry were they in, et cetera? You know, he looked at like eight or 10 parameters. And I think you know the answer here. I don't know everybody listening does. There was one parameter that was the predictor of success. And it was timing. It was timing and how long the company was able to live to intercept good timing. I'll give a great example here. So Elon starts SpaceX in circa 2001. I remember I was there 
you know, the days and the weeks that he made the decision to start it. He had just gone to Russia. He just sold PayPal to eBay and had cashed out and promptly invested at all in his new venture. Yeah. Well, he was enamored by space and enamored by energy, and he started SpaceX and Tesla. But when he was starting SpaceX, before he actually started SpaceX, he wanted to fund a project. He wanted to send a mouse in orbit around Mars or land a greenhouse on the Martian surface. His mission was to embarrass NASA into moving faster into space. Long story short, he goes to Russia to negotiate a launch vehicle. And I had done that. I had bought launch vehicles in Russia. And he goes there And he realizes that the launch vehicles he's looking to buy are 50-year-old intercontinental ballistic missiles in which the warhead is taken off the top and you put your payload on there and you launch it into space. The whole vehicle is expendable. You know, it burns up in the atmosphere. And he he says, this is a ridiculous price to pay for this 50-year-old technology that you've already written off. And what makes it worse is the Russians try and gouge him because they know he's wealthy, you know, wealthy, you know, American I'm capitalist. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> so he comes back and he goes, this is pathetic, ridiculous. And Elon's, if anything, he's a brilliant engineer and understands- And a first principle guy. He's a first, first principle thinker and understands entrepreneurial white space. And he says, okay, I'm going to start a rocket company. Now, you have to understand, I tried to talk him out of starting this rocket company because I wanted him to fund the X Prize back then, which had not been funded. I was looking for 10 million bucks. But long story short, I say all of these failures had occurred in the past. And he took a different approach on full reusability as his goal. Yeah. So 2002, three, four, five, six, seven, he's got a failure and a failure and a failure, three failures of Falcon 1. But what happens is that it's all about timing. The space shuttle has its disasters and NASA shuts down the space shuttle program and they need a replacement desperately because only the Russian Soyuz was the option. So what happens, he gets his fourth Falcon 1 successful and he wins a billion dollar contract from NASA to build Falcon 9. Had he not won that contract, it would have not succeeded. And then at the same time, Tesla in 2008, when the economy was tanking, the U.S. government was handing out large financial packages to GM and Ford and everybody, and Tesla got one of those too. So timing is luck living long enough to intercept good timing. Yeah. Well, they, you know, the whole strategic coach program is based on a single mindset, and that is that your eyes only see and your ears only hear what your brain what you're is looking, looking for. for. Yes. So it's the proper focusing of the brain. In his case, it was, you know, reusable launch vehicles. You know, and there's been a lot of incremental improvements, but this is the first discontinuous for space travel. And I said, first of all, he just took the 90% expense of a single launch and he took it down to what, 5%? Yeah. Well, he's cashing in on the profit, but he has the potential, you know, Starship has the potential to be a hundred times cheaper. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're not creating an exponential improvement, you're swimming against the current, you know, you're swimming against the current. Our whole thing is create a self-managing company and then you do what you love doing most. That's an exponential. Everybody gets that, you know, they say, oh, self-managing. It's company. so true, pal, and I've learned so much from you in that regard. 
to bring it back to the focus of this episode, yeah. you know, if people are concerned about the economy, if you're an entrepreneur and you're worried about the situation, the ninja move is to flip your mindset and to realize there are incredible opportunities that are going to become available right here and right now. Now, if your company is sucking down cash and you're running out of cash, then you've got a real problem. God knows over the last year, I've told all of my companies, I'm on my 24th, 25th company right now, you know, raise capital, raise capital, raise capital. And so they're all reasonable. But at the same time, I've also said, use the pressure to reinvent your business model and minimize cash expenditures where possible, you know, digitize, dematerialize, demonetize. Yeah. And the other thing is find out who your most adventuresome clients are and be in touch with how they're thinking about the future. So we have a thing in coach called DOS and you go out and you talk to the person and I say, just before the recession starts, pick your top 10 clients right off the top. And it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It's not in your office, not in their office. And you simply say, can I pick your brain on how you're looking at the future right now? And for example, what are the three biggest dangers that you see right now that have to be eliminated right now? Okay. And they'll talk about it because they don't talk about this to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you're not selling anything. You're simply asking them how they're looking at the future. And you say, okay, that's kind of what you're scared of. That's what's keeping you up at night because you're fear of losing something. Let's switch to opportunity. What are the three biggest opportunities you see right now that you really want to capture because there's some unique things happening right now? These really get you excited and you ask them more to go into detail about it. And they talk and talk and talk. They talk and talk and talk because they can't have this conversation with their accountant. They can't have this conversation with their team members. They can't have this conversation with anybody. Yeah. And then I say, and what are your three biggest strengths that you can maximize right now? Okay. And they talk about that because they have frustrations. You know, they're operating at 60% they're at, but they could do that. And the goal is to get through an hour and a half where you don't say anything about yourself, you don't say anything about your, what you sell, and you don't say anything about your company. And then you go back, and we have a letter that goes along with that. And you send the letter. I say, that was such a great conversation. I just thought you might like to have a record of what we talked about. And it comes back. When people are asking that type of question, they don't remember the words they use, and they think they're your words. Okay. And then you do it with about five or 10 of them. And all of a sudden, two things happen. One is that you've got a sense of the future who come from the check writers. I said, if you want to know whether somebody will use something that you create, ask the people who will write the check for it. But one of the things happens is that generally within the first half year after you do that, you have the biggest cash flow you've ever had from these 10 people. Because what you did is that you gave them back a new future. They had lost their future, and now you give them back a new future. That's what you do. You give people a new future. Yeah. Yeah. And again, going back to what I quote you for, probably most frequently is that your eyes only, you know, see and your ears only hear what you're looking for. What your brain is looking for. Yes. Our job is to train our brain to look for certain things and ignore everything else. Yeah. The way I look at it is, you know, your brain is a neural net, the same way you train AIs. You know, you're constantly training your brain to find solutions or to avoid problems. I like the DOS analysis. It's a great way actually to get people 
prepared for a rapidly changing future. In fact, my next implementation workshop for my A360 members is on meta trends. Mm-hmm. Like these are the most important meta trends coming. I think maybe what I'll do is open the workshop with a DOS for them, get them thinking about the danger opportunity and yeah, I think that's a great and uh, strengths, and then talk about the meta trends and see how will these meta trends change that. Yeah, there's a famous story about John F. Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, who was an entrepreneur in the film industry, in the stock market. He he was a bootlegger. And he had some indicators. He had some advanced scouts. He was on Wall Street, and he had a shoeshine stand. So he went down, and this is just before the first stock market crash. And he went down, and he talked to his shoeshine man. He says, how are things? He says, it's the weirdest thing. Nobody's getting their shoes shine this week. And Joe Kennedy went and he sold everything he had. Because if they're not shining their shoes, they're not feeling good about themselves. And they're conserving even the money that they would wow. use on a shoe shine. Early signals, a little breeze, right? A breeze, a, yeah. yeah. A little breeze. You want a breeze or a sledgehammer? Or do you want a Mac? Do you want to get pushed off the building? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's another thing with the timing. People who have great timing also have a lot of small sensors that tell them. Walt Disney had a great one. He said, whenever I had a new idea, I had seven specific people that I told him about it. And if they all thought it was a bad idea, I knew I had a winner. <laughs> That is perfect. <laughs> but specific people. Yeah, specific people. He said they take, oh, Walt, you know. And he said that they're 10 years behind the time and they're not picking up on social cues. So I know if they're not picking up on it, then I've got something really great and new. Oh, absolutely love it. I love it. Well, I think this is an important message for folks to hear. Well, right now. I mean, yeah, right I now. can see people battening down the hatches right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, for one, am more excited about the future than ever. I've got enough new ventures in the cooker, and it's really about helping entrepreneurs see that potential and that vision. Yeah. You know, I'm living in Toronto, and I got a piece of news yesterday. Please, what's that? And that was that the top seller of condos in Toronto, she's in our program. And she said, you know, this is the first month since 1989 that the price of residential real estate has gone down in Toronto. I said, bing. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. You know, and that's the sort of thing that I pay attention to because the residential real estate is connected to hundreds of different parts of the economy. For sure. For sure. Well, pal, this has been a good session. Look forward to seeing you again in our next episode of Exponential Wisdom. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, pal.